Please turn in your, in your Bibles to uh, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. I'm going to start there. We're going to go all the way, if the Lord wills, this morning through chapter 6. We've got a, a, lot of, a lot of text to cover, a lot of ground to cover. I was telling Dave this morning, or last night, Tom this morning as well, that with this text that we're all fairly probably familiar with if you've, if you've grown up in the church, I probably could have preached four different sermons through this text. Like, it's, it is, there's a lot there. And so there, there's going to be some of you who are like, why didn't he talk about that this morning? I, and I just, for, for sake of time, it's already a long sermon, so uh, hopefully you brought a snack. <laughs> but um, I'm going to cover some, some things that I did not cover this week. I will cover next week. So, um, but even then, I will still not cover it all. But as, as I begin my, my sermon this morning, I'm reminded that, that we all wear different hats in life. We all wear different hats. We all have things that are uniquely true of all of us. For, for instance, you got Jennifer Conti. Of course, she's, you, you might know her as a, a, a great party planner, she, which has already been well documented this morning. She's also a homeschool mom. She is, maybe you don't know this, but she's also a warrior in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So if, um, if, if you haven't seen her jiu-jitsu videos, ask her. She will be, she'll be happy to show you. I've seen them. They're good. Um, you, you might know Matt. Matt, you, you, some of you just know Matt as, as, as a preacher. Uh, some of you know Matt as, as a great husband and a great father. Some of you know Matt as the mattress guy. Some of you know Mignon as the food guy. That's about right. <laughs> and some of, you, some of you know Pat Peters. And, and Pat, you know, he's a, he had a career with, with IBM businessman. He, um, he's very passionate about missions, going all over, over, over the world, sharing the gospel. He's an elder in this church. He's a, he's a husband and he's a father. And from what I understand, he's very fond of pickleball. Is that true? It's true. Now, it, it, it would be quite absurd to take this one attribute of Pat's life, his fondness for pickleball, and to blow it up as this is the the sole defining characteristic of Pat Peter's life, Mr. Pickleball. It would be absurd. See, if you really got to know him, and if you really really knew him, you'd know that, that yes, it is absolutely true that he loves pickleball. But it is not the defining aspect of his life. It's interesting when we think about God, we tend to do something very similar. We take one attribute of God and we blow it up often to be the sole defining attribute of God. We, we, we might really hone in on, on the justice and wrath of God and he's just... The, 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 the defining characteristic of God, that he's, he's just this, this God who's just raining down lightning bolts on everybody. He's joyless. He's etc. You get the point? Or, or you might look at God and, and, and in his meekness and you just think that he's just meek and without any wrath, without any justice. You get the point. But the Bible doesn't pit God's attributes against one another. God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly merciful, perfectly intolerant of sin. They they don't pit these attributes against one another. And in in our text this morning, We're going to look at the justice and the mercy of God. 
But we're going to spend a little bit of a disproportionate time this morning talking about the justice of God. We're going to talk about this morning what happens when God wages war. My main point this morning is this. The judgment of God should strike terror into the hearts of those who rebel against him and worship to those who have escaped his wrath. Say that again. The judgment of God should strike terror into the hearts of those who rebel against him and worship to those who have escaped his wrath. So hopefully, friends, you've made your way to Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Please follow along as I read all the way through chapter 6. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, And the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came to the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest... When you have devoted them, uh, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat 
so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Point one this morning. Sub-point one this morning. Our Lord is... A warrior. Our Lord is a warrior. You might recall in our study of Joshua that in these first few chapters of the book, God is beginning to fulfill his long awaited promise to bring his covenant people Israel into the land that he promised to give Abraham in the early chapters of Genesis. In fact, we saw the Lord bring them into the land in stunning fashion in Joshua chapters 3 through 4. The Lord brought this wandering nation of over 1 million people into the promised land by stopping the Jordan River so that they could cross over into the promised land on dry ground. The event was so significant that the Lord commanded the people of Israel to build a memorial of 12 stones so that they could remember this specific event for how long? Forever. You might also remember that Joshua connected the event back to God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt by parting the Red Sea so that they could pass over safely from Pharaoh and the Egyptians who were in hot pursuit of the Israelites. When the Israelites safely passed through the parted Red Sea, God destroyed all of Pharaoh's army by bringing the waters back down on top of them. In fact, the text tells us this, that not a single Egyptian that pursued Israel survived. Not one. In that moment, Israel's enemies were destroyed before their very eyes. I I don't know how I would respond in such a moment if I witnessed such an incredible feat with my own eyes. I've never seen anything like that before. However, we know how Moses and the people of Israel responded. In Exodus 15, we find the very first song in the Bible, often called the Song of Moses. And in Exodus 15, 1 through 3, you don't need to turn there, but you can look at it later. We see what the Israelites sing in response to the Lord's judgment of the Egyptians. They sang this. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Then in verse 3, they sing this, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Friends, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord 
is his name. I don't know how that makes you feel. See, perhaps you're accustomed to simply narrowing our, our Lord down to simply being a gentle and lowly God. You might think of God as a, a, a joyful and a peaceful grandfather type figure. You might just think of Jesus as a humble man who tenderly cares for sheep and, and invites little children to sit on his lap as he enjoys their company. You see, we, we often simply narrow our view of God down to just being a really, really nice heavenly father. Now, don't get me wrong. God is gentle and lowly. He is joyful. He is a tender shepherd. He is generous and he is kind. However, church, we must understand that our Lord is a warrior. And when I say warrior, I mean a warrior in every sense of the word. Interesting enough, as we consider the connection between the parting of the Red Sea and, and the parting of the Jordan River, we must take note of this scene in, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, and see immediately after this river is parted, how God is displayed in the text. Just as God was seen as a warrior after the parting of the Red Sea, God is seen as a warrior right here in Joshua 5.13. In Joshua 5.13, we read that Joshua was near Jericho when he was approached by a majestic being. When Joshua looked up, he saw a man prepared for war. He didn't just see a man with a sword. He saw a man with a sword in his hand. He was prepared for battle. He was ready to go to war. And Joshua looked straight at this man and he said, are you for us or for our adversaries? See, I'm constantly amazed at, at Joshua's wisdom throughout this book. He always seems to ask the right questions and to, and to say the right things. And this is such an important question to consider simply because of the one whom the question was directed at. It was directed at God himself. We know this if we look at Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. There you clearly see that it was the Lord talking to Joshua. However, notice how the Lord describes himself in 5, 13 through 15. He reveals himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, I, I believe that the army that he, that he is speaking of isn't necessarily in this context a, a, a heavenly army or an angelic army. Although that is true, I don't think that's what he's talking about in this text. I actually believe that he is talking about God's people Israel who were about to wage war against Jericho. He is the commander, the true commander of that army. They were an army who was about to do the Lord's work. Now, it, it is interesting that this man was, was proclaiming to be the commander of the army of the Lord to Joshua, who was the single man in charge of all the Israelites at this time from an, from an earthly perspective. If any other man were to come up to him and say that he was commandeering the Israeli army, Joshua would most certainly have had him apprehended and likely killed. However, look at Joshua's response. What does he do? Well, in verse 14, he says this, he fell to his face on the earth and worshipped him. He fell to the ground on his face and he worshipped him. I, I want us to notice that the commander did not stop Joshua from worshipping him. Other times in scripture, when, when we see angelic beings being worshipped by man, they quickly tell the man not to worship him, but that is not the case in this text. Also, if Joshua was found uh, falling to the ground and worshipping anything other than the one true God, God certainly would have brought severe judgment against Joshua and the Israelites. However, this was more than a man. 
It was more than an angelic being. It was the Lord God. See, this is a bit more obvious in in verse 15, when the commander tells Joshua to take the sandals off his feet for the ground that he was standing on was holy. You you might be familiar that this, this harkens back exactly to what Yahweh told Moses when he revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. God told Moses to remove his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. Now God in Joshua tells Joshua to remove his sandals because the ground that he is standing on with this commander of the Lord's army is holy ground. Why was it holy? Because the Lord was there. He was in their midst. You see, God took the most God-fearing and powerful Israelite, Joshua, and brought him to his knees in his holy presence. Yet, Christians, can we consider for a moment how flippant that we can be when it comes to God? Oh, we are quick to use his name in vain. We are quick to utter ignorant and blasphemous thoughts about what we think God is like. We lack reverence when we open his holy word and his glory is revealed through the teaching, preaching, and reading of the Bible. We sing with lackluster hearts to the Lord in light of what he has done. Oh, how quickly, how quickly can we as Christians turn to idols and just simply say, well, it's okay. God will forgive me. How sad is it that we can presume upon his grace and his mercy? How despicable is it that we can meditate on God and walk away unmoved? How sad is it that we can spend whole seasons in unrepentant sin and come in and take the Lord's Supper as if Jesus' death gives us a license to sin? How absurd is it that we can feel so comfortable walking in hypocrisy? How depressing is it that we can say that we know God and what he has done for us and not tell anyone about him? How grotesque is it that even those that know us best and we feel the most comfortable around, I'm talking about our families and our friends, can witness whole seasons of life that we don't talk about God, that we don't teach about God, that we don't pray to God, that we don't serve God, that we don't glory in his goodness, praise his name, or pursue him in his word. Church, at times we lack reverence. And friends, we are living in a fantasy world, in a fantasy world, if we think that we can proclaim to be followers of Jesus Christ and have a flippant view of God. It was the glory and the holiness and the fear of God that brought Joshua to his knees. He was humbled before the Lord Almighty and in awe of his Wonder. Consider in that moment, God stood there with a sword in his hand. See, almost, almost every time someone, someone stands with a sword in their hand in the Bible, it is for the purpose of judgment. The purpose of judgment. For instance, in, in Numbers 22, 22 you, you can mark this down and look at it later. We see that God's anger was kindled against Balaam because of his disobedience and lack of reverence for the Lord. Therefore, the angel of the Lord came and stood before Balaam and his donkey with his sword in his hand, ready to wage war against Balaam for his perverse ways. We also see the angel of the Lord draw his sword against the man after God's own heart, David. In 1 Chronicles 21, 16, after he dishonored the Lord by seeking his own glory and attempting to take a census, the nation of Israel. In other words, hear me friends, God wages war against sin. He's not passive against it. He hates it. Many times throughout the Bible, he comes and he brings a literal sword to bring justice. 
against sinners. Friends, this is our God. Numbers 1 tells us that God is a jealous and avenging God. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Ezekiel 25.17 describes God as one who will execute great vengeance. Psalm 11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, too many Christians want to skip over such attributes as, as they present God to unbelievers or to strangers or to their children. They present the Lord as some needy and pathetic man in the skies living in his mom's basement, just sitting here begging to be loved. We must understand that our God is not needy in any way. He's not needy. He is perfectly self-sufficient and self-satisfied within the Trinity. He is a reigning king. He is a conqueror. He is not effeminate. He is not a sissy. He is not passive. He is not weak. He is a warrior. Which begs the question, who does he wage war against? Point two, the Lord wages war against the wicked. The Lord wages war against the wicked. He doesn't just wage war against sin. He wages war against sinners. So when Joshua saw the Lord with his sword in his hand, he asked such a mature question. He said, are you for us or for our adversaries? As he gazed at the holiness of God, he did not presume that he was worthy to stand in his presence. He noticed that there was a stark difference between him and the Lord. He knew very well that it was possible that God could be there to judge him and the Israelites. Why? Because God had judged them before and he would judge the Israelites again in the future. Yet we know in, in this setting that God was indeed for his covenant people, Israel. See, and, and instead, as we've, every, as we've read in this passage this morning, we know that God was waging war against the people of Jericho. Now, it has been said by many people when they read passages like this that God appears as a genocidal maniac. You might think that. They claim that God is sadistic and he's not good at all. You see, because of that, many, many pastors, they, they, they decide to kind of skirt around such passages and, and such topics. Cowardly preachers who are ashamed of God seek to try and give God a public relations facelift and avoid preaching through much of the Old Testament altogether, especially passages like this one. But God, friends, does not need our public relations. He does not need our apologies. He doesn't need us to make his word more palatable for carnal men. In this passage... The character and holiness of God, it shines bright as he judges the wicked citizens of Jericho. To put it plainly, the people of Jericho deserved the wrath of God because of their sin against a holy God. Consider with me verse 1 of chapter 6. It says that the city of Jericho was shut up because of Israel. Now, we know from previous chapters of Joshua that the citizens of Jericho were well aware of Israel. They knew how, how God defeated Israel's enemies in the past. They knew what God did to Egypt. They knew that God parted the Jordan River so that the nation of Israel could pass over into the promised land. They were not ignorant of the fact that they did not stand a chance against the God of Israel. They knew their fate. They knew they were doomed, yet they were shut up. In other words, they did not come outside of the walls and appeal to the Israelites for mercy. They didn't offer surrender in exchange for their lives and the lives of their children. They didn't even try to initiate a fight. They simply tried to take refuge in their fortified walls and hoped for the best. 
No one came into the city and no one came out of the city. See, friends, this is a stark picture of the spiritual state of the people of Israel. I'm, I'm sorry, of the people of Jericho. They did not look at this glorious and powerful God of Israel and seek to know him and follow him and worship him. They did not seek refuge in him. They observed his power from a distance and they ran from him. Their hearts were hardened against him in rebellion. As I've said before throughout the book of Joshua, that is what ungodly fear looks like. It it runs from God rather than running towards God for mercy. However, the people of Jericho, they made up their minds. They would not seek mercy from the one true God. They hardened their hearts against him. So we see in in verse 2 that the Lord had given Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. Now, we might wonder, why was the Lord about to wage war against the city that isn't even provoking Israel at the moment? You might wonder that. It'd be a good question. Well, aside from the fact that God was giving this promised land, including Jericho, to the Israelites, God was ultimately bringing judgment to the people of Jericho because of their sin. What God was doing here. Don't miss that. In other words, the citizens of Jericho weren't just innocent people in the way of the Israelites' conquest to take over the Middle East. They were a guilty and godless group of people who raged against God and their sinfulness. Now, this might not seem abundantly clear from the book of Joshua. Yet, if you study the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you'll understand that this had been God's sovereign plan all along when he promised to give this land to Abraham and the past generations of Israel. Travel with me back in the Bible for a bit to, to Genesis chapter 15 for a moment. In Genesis chapter 15, the Lord God reiterated his promise to Abraham to give him the promised land that he swore to give to him in Genesis chapter 12. However, in Genesis chapter 15, God also offers more explicit details about how Abraham's descendants would receive the land. God reveals that his descendants would go into slavery for 400 years. But God would bring himself glory by delivering his descendants from slavery. Then in Genesis 15, 16, this is what I don't want you to miss. We see that the Lord would bring the fourth generation of Abraham's descendants back into the land after, you can underline that if you've got your Bible open, after the iniquity of the Amorites was complete. In other words, the Lord would judge the Amorites for multi-generational sins and their lack of repentance before God. Said another way, God wasn't just giving Israel a promised land. He was simultaneously judging the wicked Amorites because of their sin. And it's important that we understand that. Because we find something similar in Leviticus 18. In Leviticus 18, God provides sexual ethics and laws for the people of Israel in order that they might display his purity and glory in the land. Referencing these laws in Leviticus 18, 24 through 28, we read, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. Any of these things is the sexual um, laws and ethics outlined in Leviticus 18 prior. For by all these things, the sexual immorality, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Again, we see that the Lord wasn't just giving Israel a piece of land. He was simultaneously judging the wicked nations. 
In fact, these other nations were so wicked and perverse before the Lord that God even described their land as unclean. Their land itself, it was cursed. Their lives and actions were considered abominations before the Lord. Their sexual rebellion was repulsive before the Lord God. It didn't matter if their sexual choices and practices were consensual and culturally tolerable. They didn't have to answer to popular culture or to the laws of their district. They would answer to God alone. They followed their own carnal desires and stood to receive the wrath of God. Yet we might also consider Deuteronomy 18. As the Lord continues to give his laws and statutes to the people of Israel, he tells them in Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you. We can see that the nations, they were not seeking the one true God and his wisdom. Instead, they were seeking the vain philosophies and supposed wisdom of the world. They practiced all sorts of witchcraft and demonic activity rather than practicing righteousness before God. They even sacrificed their own children on altars for their own well-being. Because of their wickedness, God was driving them out of the land. Finally, we should also consider what God explicitly says in Deuteronomy chapter 9. You might be under the impression that, that God was bringing Israel into the land because of something good that they had done. They're driving the nations out because of their sin and, and they're bringing Israel into the land because of their righteousness. You might think that Israel earned the right to be in the promised land, that they were a good and upright people. However, nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5, the Lord God told Israel this, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And we could go on. See, it's interesting to consider that one of God's primary motives in bringing Israel into the promised land is to execute judgment upon the unbelieving and wicked nations. We often forget that, don't we? See, one might say that the storyline of the Bible isn't just about God's grace, but also about his judgment and wrath towards those who reject him. Granted, we know that Israel did not deserve God's blessings. At times, they were just as wicked as any other generation. And in fact, it has already been said many times that the previous generation of Israelites who didn't follow the Lord were not allowed to enter into the promised land. They died off in judgment, wandering through the desert. God was simply being gracious to bring any Israelites in at all. God was also being gracious and showing the Israelites exactly what happens to nations and people who reject the Lord God, refuse to walk in his ways, and do not bow the knee to the king of majesty. They receive Judgment from our warrior king. We know that Israel as a whole failed to heed that warning. Like the nations that they drove out, by and large, they would ultimately succumb to their own sin and be driven out of the land and brought into captivity by the will and judgment of God. Ultimately, they did not listen to God. The question is this, hear me. Will we 
Allow me to be more specific. Will you? Will you? See, we live in a nation that has by and large rejected Jesus Christ. At our core, we are a nation rampant with all sorts of sexual perversion. Our nation is one of the largest consumers of porn in the entire world. Marriage is in rapid decline and cohabitation continues to rise exponentially in our country. The wash, rinse, repeat pattern of divorce and remarriage continues to dominate our culture. We are a nation that takes a whole month to celebrate sodomy in its many forms. We parade around people who mock God's design for manhood and womanhood as they mutilate their bodies and pretend to be something that they're not. Even children are sacrificed on the altar of sexual autonomy and rebellion towards the Lord as they are allowed puberty blockers and genital mutilation at a young age. In fact, one million babies this year alone will be sacrificed on the altar of sexual autonomy through abortion in our country just this year. We aren't just sexually perverse as a nation, though. Our worldviews and our philosophies are godless. We are a nation that worships self. Self-expression, self-promotion, and self-celebration is our form of worship. We don't seek necromancers and fortune tellers often, but we seek pagan ideologies like Enneagram, horoscopes, and personality tests to try and truly know who we are and how we should live in this world. We don't seek to repent before God in this world, but we seek self-improvement through our diets, through our exercise, our intellect, our financial strategies, and so much more. See, we, we are a nation that has been marked by racism and partiality since our founding. We are a nation that discards the least of these, whether they are young, whether they are old, whether they are weak, whether they are frail. Friends, just look on social media and the news and you will find that we are a nation that is so full of greed and envy and strife and hatred as a society. That is where we live. That is our environment. We are far from a city on a hill. We are far from a Christian nation. We are far from a nation that honors the Lord. We are a nation that unless it repents, it deserves the wrath of God. Yet, we must understand that even as God is a righteous judge and a warrior, he is also extremely patient. He is patient with his judgment. Consider with me that the Lord took well over 450 years to bring these people to judgment. From the time of Abraham to the time of Joshua, God was patient. Not only that, but I want us to see God's patience in chapter 6. As God was going to judge the people of Jericho, notice that he did not command the Israelites to threaten or to intimidate the people of Jericho for six days. Notice that? And in fact, in verse 10, Joshua strictly told the Israelites to not even let their voices be heard at all. He said, shut up. Instead, in verse 3, we see that God just commanded his people to march around the city. They were to take ram's horns and, and blow them and prayed them around the city with the Ark of the Covenant in hand. The point wasn't to showcase the mighty men of Israel. The point wasn't to showcase the glory of the nation. The point was to showcase the presence of God among his people with the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And they did this all the way through verse 14 for six days. Can, can you imagine as 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 the people of Jericho saw the Israelites just marching around their city in a very non-threatening way, what they thought. Can, can you imagine how, how foolish the Israelites must have looked to them? All that these Israelites were doing was prating around their God. Meanwhile, Jericho remained shut up. Not once for six days did they surrender. 
Not once for six days did the citizens plead for mercy. They didn't even fight. They simply ignored Yahweh and the people of Israel. They closed their hearts and their minds toward him. Understand this, that even up until the very, very, very end, God was very, very, very patient with this wicked nation. But ultimately, God's patience ended and the seventh day arrived. In verses 15 through 17, the Lord would act. He would call his covenant people Israel to blow the trumpets and shout. And this shout was a shout of celebration. It was a shout of already declared victory. No one had even raised a finger to fight, but the Israelites already had certain victory because the Lord God was on their side. So they shouted, and the walls fell down. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Everything that the citizens of Jericho thought that brought them security and safety and protection, it came crashing down in an instant. There were no rams that brought down the walls. Warriors didn't need to scale the walls and and open up the door to the city to let the mighty men through. God simply willed for the walls to fall, and they fell. In that moment, it was, a, it was as if an earthquake shattered the whole city, yet it wasn't natural causes that called the wall, caused the wall to fall. It wasn't the Israelites that caused the wall to fall. It was the will of the Lord God, willing it that the walls fell. And once the walls fell, God called his people to devote everything to total destruction in the city. They destroyed everything. Verse 21, it says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Every weak and frail elderly person, hear me, dead. Every child, dead. Dogs, sheep, cattle, dead. Verse 24 says this, they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Not only that, but verse 26 says this, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son, Shall he set up its gates? Friends, we are talking about total judgment here. Total judgment. We're talking about total annihilation. The people were destroyed. The city was destroyed. And there was even a curse put on anyone that would attempt to rebuild the city. The city and its people would never, ever, ever return to safety. Never, ever, ever return to prominence. They experienced the judgment and the wrath of God. And here's the thing. Everything that happened in Jericho pleased the Lord. Pleased him. Verse 17 says that the destruction of the city was a devotion to the Lord. You see that? This was an offering to the Lord. I don't know how this makes you feel. I know this is heavy. I know how I feel. See, I'm, I'm extremely confident of the way that I'm interpreting the text and the heart of God based on what he wrote in other passages of Scripture. I'm confident this is true. Yet in my heart, in my, not my, in my flesh, I must confess that it feels a bit extreme. It feels wild. It feels like God didn't have to go this far. However, that is because my flesh cannot begin to comprehend the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness and the justice of God. In fact, my flesh and your flesh wants to wage war against the holiness of God. It wants to bring God down to meet my subpar level of supposed righteousness in an effort to make much of me. 
I want to be able to stand validated before God on my own efforts. I want to be able to boast that I'm a pretty good guy surrounded by a bunch of really good people. I want to boast that I've never really done anything major to harm anyone. I've never killed anyone. I've never robbed anyone. I've never stolen anything from anyone. Yet we must understand that our lives and our character aren't even in the same universe as the holiness of God. We don't come close. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely set apart like no other single being in the cosmos. Apart from Christ, hear me, friends, all of us, especially myself, we are completely wretched. When we sin, we don't just sin against someone who is basically like us. We sin against a God who is so far more holy and righteous than we could ever imagine. Friends, we must understand that God is good and just to punish the wicked. Yet, we must also understand that each and every one of us, left to ourselves, is wicked and worthy of the wrath of God. Our only hope is to come to him for mercy. Just point three. Our warrior king gives mercy to those that fear him. Our warrior king gives mercy to those that fear him. Isn't it interesting that for, the most, for most of us, as we read this text, the hardest thing to reconcile with this passage is how a good God could devote a whole city of men, women, and children to total destruction. Isn't that the hardest thing for us to reconcile? Instead, the thing that should be the hardest for our hearts to reconcile is how a good and holy God spared even one woman and her family at all. That God would save any of us should be the most perplexing truth that we ever encounter, period. Of course, I'm talking about Rahab, who is mentioned in verse 17. In verse 17, we see that Rahab and those living in her house or her family would be spared from his wrath and judgment. See, this harkens back to Joshua chapter 2, where the two spies who went into Jericho made a deal with Rahab not to kill her and her household because by faith she hid spies from the authorities in Jericho. In other words, friends, hear me this. She feared the Lord more than she feared the king of Jericho. In order to live, she put her faith in the Lord rather than in her own ability or in the security of the walls of Jericho or in the security of the king of Jericho. She saw the Lord for who he was and she bowed the knee to the one true God. She simply sought mercy from the all-powerful king of the universe and our faithful God gave her mercy. And notice that she didn't have to do anything to receive God's mercy. Do you see the description of Rahab in verses 17 and verse 25? Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Let me translate that a bit. She was guilty of all that sexual sin we referred to in the book of Leviticus just a few moments ago. You know, the kind of sin that was the reason that God was bringing judgment upon the nation of Jericho. Make no mistake about it, friends. Rahab was extremely guilty before the Lord. There was nothing she could have done to make herself clean in her own strength. There was nothing she could have done to appease God's wrath. She could only come to God and ask for mercy. Yet, notice... God doesn't just spare her life. Verse 25 says that she was brought into the people of God and lived there for the rest of her life. God didn't just spare her and then send her on her own way out into the wilderness. 
She was a changed woman with a new family and a new identity. She was once not a part of the people of God, but now she was a fellow citizen with the people of God. I love the way that verse 25 puts it. She lives among the Israelites to this very day. Of course, we know that the book of Joshua was, was, was written well into the future and it covered events that took place in the past. But even then, Rahab didn't just spend a season of her life among the people of God to eventually flee and walk away. These were her people. This was her nation. Yet, God didn't just spare her and make her a part of the people of God. In his kindness, God used the life of Rahab in the most glorious of ways. He used her in ways that for those of us in Christ that we will be singing about for all of eternity. We know that that from the book of Matthew, that Rahab had a son with Salmon named Boaz. And Boaz would eventually have a child named Obed with a woman named Ruth. You see, Obed was the father of Jesse, who fathered King David. And eventually we know that through the line of David, the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, he would come. You see, God took this prostitute who sinfully sold her body for money, and he redeemed her. No longer would her body be used for sinful gain, but for godly gain. God took this woman and her sinful body to help bring about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is significant. Hear me, friends, if you don't hear anything else I've said this morning, this is significant because it is only through Jesus Christ alone that the wrath of God can be directed away from us. It is only through Jesus Christ alone that the wrath of God can be directed away from us. So you might wonder how a holy and just God can just choose to give people mercy without justice being satisfied while he seemingly demands for justice to be satisfied from others like the citizens of Jericho. See, the answer to this question is simple. Every single sin that you and I ever commit will be paid for. The wrath of God will indeed be satisfied toward every sinner. The question isn't, will justice be served? The question is, how will justice be served? Friends, it will be served in one of two ways. You will pay the penalty of your sins, or Jesus will pay the penalty of your sins. Should you choose to pay the penalty of your sins by rejecting Jesus, know that the penalty is eternity away from God and away from God's people in hell. It is an, it is an eternal death where one cannot escape. You will never sufficiently pay it off because you are a finite creature who has sinned against an infinitely holy God. There is no purgatory where one works off their sin until they're made righteous in a million years. There is no annihilation where you just seek to exist. According to the Bible, friends, the payment for your sin is eternally experiencing the wrath of God forever and ever without end. If you reject Christ in this life, you reject him forever and he rejects you forever. Or Christ could pay the penalty of your sins. In fact, the Bible tells us that this is what he came to do. He came so that people would believe in him and have life in his name. God, the son, left heaven and became a human. Jesus was a a real human who walked the earth. And he had the same temptations that you and I had. He experienced hunger, heartbreak, trials, and rejection like you and I do. Yet, he was without sin. He was the only human being to ever walk the earth and never sinned once. And in his mercy, he came to die for us. He came to appease the wrath of God against sinful humans for us. He came and laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice to pay the penalty 
of our sins. And being that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man and was perfectly sinless, his death perfectly satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. God the Father perfectly poured out his full wrath against Jesus. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 53.10 that we already read this morning that the Lord God was pleased to crush him. In other words, justice was done. The penalty of our sins was paid. The wrath of God satisfied. That is why before Jesus died, he lifted up his head and with a victory shout, he said, it is finished. And then he offered up his life. And on that cross, he died. However, on that third day after Jesus died, we celebrate because the Lord Jesus, he rose from the grave. And as he rose from the grave, he defeated sin and death once and for all. Therefore, when we come to Christ for mercy and we seek his forgiveness, we will not experience eternal death, but eternal life because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. So we can look at Jericho and, and we could wonder, how could a good God kill people even if they were evil? The better question is to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and ask, how could a good God offer his own son to be killed on behalf of a sinful and wretched humanity? Because that is the greatest act of injustice in the history of this world. Well, we know this, that the father didn't guilt or force Jesus to die. Jesus said that in John 10, no one took his life from him, but he laid it down freely. Hebrews tells us that Jesus went to the cross because of the joy set before him. In other words, it pleased the Godhead in totality for Jesus Christ to die. Why? Because God is not just a vengeful, wrathful God. He is also a God of mercy. And his mercy doesn't cancel out his justice. His justice doesn't cancel out his mercy. And this is the incredible thing about God. All of those who come to God for mercy will receive mercy. Everyone who turns from their life of sin and rebellion and seeks forgiveness from God receives it in Christ Jesus. See, God doesn't call you to clean yourself up first. He doesn't call you to become an expert in theology before coming to him. Jesus is calling and he simply says, Come, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Yet he doesn't just spare us. Because of Christ, he brings us into fellowship with the people of God, the church. He takes sinful and broken and diverse people and gives them true unity in Christ. He takes people that otherwise wouldn't get along like, each, like, like us or have anything in common and gives them something eternally in common. He brings us into the family of God where we love one another, serve one another, fight for holiness with one another, pray for one another, and ultimately spend eternity worshiping Christ together forever. He doesn't just spare us and bring us into his church, though. He makes us useful. He makes us useful he puts his spirit in us and changes us and equips us for service in his kingdom. Daily, he makes us more like Jesus. He empowers us with spiritual gifts so that we can serve the body of Christ. And not only that, but he promises to never leave us as he commands us to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations for his kingdom and for his glory. He empowers us and equips us to take the good news that Jesus saves sinners to our community, to our nation, and to our world, which is what Pat will be doing shortly. No matter our background, Jesus makes us truly and eternally useful. Friends, this is our God. Consider this as we close. He is the God that wages war against sin. He is the God who shows mercy to the sinner. He is the God who wages war against the world. He is the God who is the savior of the world. As we consider him this morning, I pray that our hearts would burn in affection for Jesus Christ.
Christ. I pray that we would see him as he is and that we would bow the knee to King Jesus. I I pray that we would find great comfort in his love. I pray that we would find godly fear as we consider his holiness and majesty. I pray that we would walk in obedience and hate sin because we know that our Savior hates sin and has empowered us to walk in righteousness. What a mighty and an awesome and a wise and a holy God that we serve, church. Amen.